Welcome to Platypod, the official podcast of the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, and Computing. Here, we host dialogues and conversations about the theories, tools, and social interactions that explore questions at the intersection of anthropology and science and technology studies. This bonus content is a reading from Platypus, the Castag blog. Enjoy! Junk Anthropology, a manifesto for trashing and untrashing. Rebecca Carlson. It is currently held, not without certain uneasiness, that 90% of human DNA is junk. The renowned Cambridge molecular biologist Sidney Brenner makes a helpful distinction between junk and garbage. Garbage is something used up and worthless which you throw away. Junk is something you store for some unspecified future use. End quote. Junk is failure. In the bioscience lab near Tokyo, where I did my ethnographic study, the researchers taught me how to do PCR experiments. This was before COVID when almost everyone came to know what PCR was, or at least what kind of instrumental information it could be good for. The lab was working with mouse models, although I never got to see them in their cages. But the researcher I was shadowing showed me how to put the mouse tail clippings she collected into small tubes. She hated cutting tails, by the way, and preferred to take ear punches when she could. She told me that she didn't like the way the mice wiggled under her hand, as if they just knew. But at this point, anyway, the mice are alive in the animal room, and she's only putting small but vital pieces of them into a tube to dissolve them down, mice becoming means, to get to the foundation of what she really wants. I've still got the protocol that I typed up from the notes I made with her in the lab. Step one was, add 75 microliters of NaOH to each ear punch tube, changing tips as I go. The changing pipette tips part was really important to avoid haphazardly spreading around DNA, I learned. I also had to make sure the clippings were at the bottom of the tube and submerged. She said I could flick the tubes with my finger to get the material to fall down to the bottom, and she showed me how to do it. I also, she cautioned, always had to be very careful of bubbles. But more flicking could help there, and by making sure I didn't put the pipette too far down into the solution. Then we would spin the tubes in the vortex, which I always typed as vortex for some reason, add some other reagents, and put it all on the PCR machine. But that is not at all its technical name. Then we would usually go with all the others to the cafeteria for lunch. In writing this now, I couldn't remember what NAOH stood for, so I had to ask the internet. And as I looked back over this protocol and these practices I was just barely learning to embody before the pandemic sent us all home, I realized that they must have settled back in my mind somewhere, just as the materialness of the lab which had anchored them for me has receded like a shrinking lake in a drought summer. But what I do hold on to is what the researcher taught me about the importance of repetition and focus for a kind of purity of practice and the diligence to make materials whether of mice or of sodium hydroxide, do what they ought to do. Because what captivated me about these initial PCR steps was what appeared to me to be the profound transformation they wrought. Of course, I'm not the first person to say so. From fleshy ear punch to silt DNA multiplied in a clear plastic tube with just a little bit of chemicals and some repetitive cycles of heat. But even more, how this transmutation had the potential to fail in one way or for one reason or another. How difficult it could actually be to get the materials, and even the researchers themselves, to do what they ought. 
Once, I used some unknown solution instead of water because it was on a shelf in an unmarked bottle close to where the water, which I later supposed had gone missing, was usually kept. Once, I didn't remember to change pipette tips, or the sense in my hands of precisely what to do next and properly would simply begin to unravel. When we had to throw the tubes in the trash, the researcher comforted me by telling me about a time when her mind wandered for just an instant while pipetting, and she lost track of which tube she had last filled with reagent. A minor, momentary mistake that grows, and can even burst, into a huge error in the downstream. She taught me that if sometimes, if I lifted the tubes to the light to examine their volume of liquid, I might be able to get back on track. Other times, the PCR machine might not cycle its heat properly. One machine was already considered to be of questionable working order, but the lab didn't have the funding to replace it. We didn't know about its full potential for failure until we got all the way through to the very last stage of the process and discovered we had to go back to the beginning with new clippings. Junk as potential. The researcher and I classified these particular, wait, was that water? Experiments in the making as failures because they missed the mark of their intentions. Their purposefulness, decided in advance by the goal of genotyping these mice, was also appended to other purposes, specifically to cultivate a living gene population that the researchers needed for other more central concerns. Trashing the experiments that deviated from this intentionality, although it could be costly, was a seemingly simple decision. After the PCR melt and the second half of the experiment, the electrophoresis machine either read back the base pair numbers we were looking for, or those numbers were just wrong and we'd made an obvious mistake. Or worse, everything collapsed into inconclusiveness, and we needed to repeat the experiment anyway. In this case, deviation from expectation, and therefore from usefulness, was what pushed experiments to a kind of failure, beyond which point they could not, in this context at least, be so easily reclaimed. But what does something like junk have to do with mice ear punches, chemical transmutation, and mundane laboratory failures? Garbage experiments are routine in scientific practice, after all. But as any scientist might tell you, failure can be its own kind of productive. In the least, as a way to learn the value of steady hands and how to recognize water by smell or its necessity as control in genotyping, to become a capable doer, as one scientist told me. But beyond these mundane errors, some scientists argue that failures of a particular kind can break open old ways of thinking and doing, although what that failure is, and can be, is variously classified. Quote, Science fails. This is especially true when tackling new problems. Science is not infallible. Researcher activity is a desire to go outside of existing worldviews, to destroy known concepts, and to create new concepts in uncharted territories. End quote. Quote, I wish failure were the trick to seeing and moving beyond the limits of current knowledge. Is that what Kuhn said? I think that paradigm change requires making a reproducible observation that does not fit within the existing model, then going back to the whiteboard. But I don't think these observations are very well classified as a failure. If failure equals unexpected result of a successful experiment, measurement, then I can agree. End quote. Failure has more potential than we might often recognize, where an instinct to trash can instead push to new beginnings, 
Just as Rabinow described Brenner describing, failure is like junk. Those materials are states that are in the waiting, waiting to be actualized, reordered, and reclaimed as meaningful, valid, and valuable, even if we don't yet know how or why. Junk is, in this way, more than matter, quote, out of place, although it may land there interstitially. If, quote, dirt is the byproduct of a systemic ordering and classification of matter, insofar as ordering involves rejecting inappropriate elements, end quote, then junk is garbage and failure and decay and even breakdown on the precipice of being made anew. After all, without intentionality or purposefulness and other values, there can be no garbage or failed and failing experiments and paradigms in the first place. Consider an example that seems categorically different from scientific experiments, inventory management and role-playing video games. In Diablo 4, any item picked up from downed enemies or collected in the environment can be marked as junk and then salvaged by visiting an in-game merchant. These bits of armor and other gear reappear in your inventory after as junk's constituent materials, useful again for crafting and building up new things, strips of leather and other scraps, as well as blueprints for better stuff. In Fallout 4, the junk jet gun lets you repurpose your inventory instead as ammo, anything from wrenches to teddy bears, which can be shot back out into the world and at random adversaries where you might later be able to pick them up again if you want. Managing encumbrance in Skyrim, on the other hand, is a task of drudgery and tedium. Almost every item in the game world is movable, each with its own weight calculation, and can be picked up and stored even accidentally, until your character is weighed down to the point of being unmovable. But the game is designed to make you feel that there's always the possibility that some magical potion random apple or 12 candlesticks might just come in handy for a future encounter, a book that you might really read later, leading to a hesitancy to trash anything. In turn, every item brims with as yet undiscovered use value. As Caitlin DeSalvi argues, quote, objects generate social effects, not just in their preservation and persistence, but in their destruction and disposal, end quote. And certainly this is true when, over-encumbered deep inside a dungeon, I agonize over which items to drop, in order to move again, in order to continue to collect more, or laugh as I spray the world with cigarettes and telephones. For me, then, junk is a way to look to and for when and where particular boundaries of the useful or valuable, and even the clean and functioning, are breached and then reordered. Although Heimrich is speaking to scientific experimental practices and their ongoing ideologies, his insight is useful for Junk's attention to those very breaches. Quote, Moments when abstractions and formalisms break, forcing reimaginations of the phenomena they would apprehend. End quote. Of course, Junk DNA itself has experienced this very kind of breaching. More recent scientific research demonstrating its non-coding role is actually not without usefulness, reanimating it for future use. And although DeSalvi is describing vibrant, multi-species animated decay within abandoned homesteads, like Homerick, she points to Junk's transformative potential. We just have to dig through rotted wood and insect-eaten paper, 
or virtual backpacks and books to find it. Junk is repair. Junk merges failure, trash, and decay with the processual and everyday negotiation of culturally meaningful and policed categories. Garbage, scraps, and waste, but also, quote, breakdown, dissolution, and change. Although Stephen J. Jackson describes the way these last three are fundamental features of modern media and technology, an anthropology of junk collects and extends these processes into broader techniques and social practices. Junk can help us see connections crisscrossing symbolic and material breakage and disintegration, to see invisibility of the dirty and diseased, not as a property of any material or technological object alone, but is also always in coordination and collaboration with the ways they are imagined and invested, and more, always enmeshed in variously articulated forms of power. If infrastructures like computer networks, for example, become more visible when broken, it is not their brokenness or decay in an absolute sense that reveals them, but the way their state change defies our everyday and embodied expectations, the way they push against normativity. We may be just as surprised to find things in good working order. Bit rot, after all, has just as much to do with the made intentionally inoperable systems that force the decay or really uselessness of data, as it does with any actual mold on CD-ROMs and other corruptions of age and wear. In fact, digital information or technological and material infrastructures don't become broken, just as they don't become fully ever fixed either. Breaks and breaches are hardly so linear. Instead, these are, quote, relative, continually shifting states, end quote. This view, be, this view may be in contrast to Pink et al.'s suggestion to attend, quote, to the mundane work that precedes data breakages or follows them, end quote, but not to their entreaty to follow those everyday practices of maintenance and repair and even intentional failure and forced rot. This is not simply because data and other material practices like PCR experiments may fail under given conditions or forced intentions, perhaps as a result of a momentary distraction or a faulty machine, or in the case of programming, because debugging is actually 90% of the work, as one bioinformatician told me. Indeed, software testing and practice goes beyond merely verifying functionality or fixing bugs and broken bits of code but helps to define and make, quote, lively what that software is and can do and can be made to do in the first place. Along the way, as a generative process, testing, tinkering, and fixing have social effects which are external to, but always an extension of, broken, working materials themselves. Junk is resistance. More importantly, perhaps, broken things can be used, as Brian Larkin argued in relation to Nigerian media and infrastructures, as a, quote, conduit to mount critiques of the social order, to call attention to inconsistency and inequality, and to demand or remodulate for change. To see this resistance at work demands a collating of junk practices. As Juris Milestone wrote in his description, of a 2014 American Anthropology Association panel, what will an anthropology of maintenance and repair look like? Quote, Fixing things can be both innovation and a response to the ravages of globalization, 
either through reuse as a counter-narrative to disposability, or resistance to the fetish of the new, or as a search for connection to a material mechanical world that is increasingly automated and remote. End quote. Junk's transformative potential asks us to see removal and erasure, or in Douglas's terms, quote, rejection, as always coupled to these reciprocal practices, rebirth, repair, repurpose, renewal. In this way, Junk shows us the way decay, even technological corruption, is less a, quote, death than a continued animation of other processes, end quote. But if Junk describes a sociocultural ordering system concerned with practices of moving materials, even ideas and people, into and out of categories of value and purposefulness, it must also contend with the vital agency of other material and microscopic worlds, which just as easily unravel out or spool up, regardless of human presence, intention, and desire. Laboratory mice, in fact, are particularly disobedient. They hardly ever behave as they are supposed to. Just as cell cultures in a lab are finicky and fail to grow to expectations. And junk ammo from the junk jet has a 10% chance of becoming suspended in midair, becoming irretrievable. If we repurpose sites or moments of breakdown to resist configurations of power, the materials themselves are always also resisting what they ought to do or become. This is the draw of the things in which we are enmeshed, where we are always extending, observing, destroying, and deleting. If junk is the possibility, under particular cultural expectations and desires, for things to be pushed or cycled across thresholds, and also of making and unmaking these, it also must contend with the things themselves, with what we see in a corroded mirror, looking, or not, back at us. Although junk may be overbursting in its use here as a metaphor, I argue it can still usefully be used to stitch growing anthropological attention to material decay, breakage, and deviation, together with tinkering, maintenance, and repair across locations, states, practices, and materialities. Granted, manifesto is a too decisive word to attach to this short piece, too sure of itself. But this post is also an attempt to challenge the understanding of what it means to be academically polished and complete. I use manifesto here, mostly tongue-in-cheek, while still holding to the idea that any argument has to begin in small seeds and start growing from somewhere. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any comments and feedback, feel free to share them with us on the blog. You can find the link to the post in the description of the episode.